Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. I'm going to be keeping you company for the next hour. And we're going to be looking at some stories here in Ireland and further afield. And coming up on today's show, a mega oil deal in the US. What does it tell us about the transition to green energy? And as comic legend John Cleese takes up a role with GB News and Boris Johnson is set to become a presenter there soon. We're going to look at the people and the finance behind the controversial opinion-led TV station. And finally, the influencer. It's made it into the dictionary this week. So we'll be looking at the tricks of the trade that make you buy stuff that you never really wanted and maybe never even needed. If you want to get in contact with us about any of today's items, you can email me at takingstock at newstalk.com. I'm also open on Twitter at StockNT. So first up today, let's start with that issue I mentioned just there. The word de-influencer made it into the Collins English Dictionary this week as Black Friday and Christmas shopping loom on the horizon. We're all about to be absolutely bombarded with marketing. So we wanted to take a look at the psychology of shopping and why we actually buy stuff that we don't want or even need. Well, Brianna Parkins from the Irish Times has been writing about this of late. She's written an excellent column about it and she joins me on the line now. Brianna, you're very welcome. Hi, it's nice to be here. Now, Brianna, let's start with that new word, the de-influencer. These, there's people online now who are trying to save us from ourselves and stop us shopping. Am I right? Yeah, it's sort of a response almost to the way that um, online content and, and whole genres of content have sprung up around consumption. So we know we've always had influencers, you know, basically since the inception of, of Instagram, um, selling us things. And we know that when we see the hashtag, you know, SponCon or ad, we know that that's a brand paying an influencer to sell us something. And we know that that's, that's content that's trying to get us to buy something. But it's gotten a little bit more blurred with that. The line between content and marketing has, you know, it's, it's porous. It's mm. almost completely non-existent anymore because now we're seeing entire genres of content around Amazon finds spring up. So these will be videos that you'll be watching and it'll be like, you know, 20 Amazon buys under 50 euro that will, you know, make your life easier and, and clean your car and cook your pasta and all these things. And what is actually happening there is, is there are content creators. These kind of people have moved on from influencing because their faces aren't even in it anymore. They're actually not the brand. It's them showing us stuff to buy. This is where we've gotten to now. Yeah, I actually in reading your article, then you start realising, yeah, that's what I'm at. I'm watching a, a five minute video of someone making a smoky eye and actually I'm buying eyeshadow. It's really what I'm doing yeah, at the end of the day. Makeup is a huge one for that. It's it's, And that's why, you know, you'll often go into um, makeup stores and even on their websites and it will go viral products. Mm. And those are the ones that are, you know, some of them are organic. Some of them are just good products and lots of people start buying them and then other content uh, creators then start getting onto the same bandwagon and then it gets critical mass. Some of them are planted by the companies themselves. So the line between recommendation and marketing campaign, again, it's really blurred. Yeah, and that's really interesting when you say the line is blurred between content and marketing, kind of having the, you know, having the wherewithal to say, well, what's the difference? That's that's the that's the important bit. But I guess where this really um, takes effect is where you start to um, buy things that you never wanted and never needed. Um, and that's the difference between somebody who's kind of consciously online shopping for a product and those who might be just sitting there at night scrolling away. But it's a huge industry. 
Yeah, that's the that's the danger zone. So I, I spoke to Paige Pritchard. She is a Texan native. She has a background in marketing, but she became um, a spending coach after she said that she shopped her way through her $60,000 mm. salary in one year living at home. And she says that that downtime when you're mindlessly scrolling or doom scrolling and you're not feeling great about yourself and you see someone, let's say, for example, if anyone has teenagers at home, they'll know about the clean girl aesthetic. So it's you know a girl who has her life together. She's heading off to the gym. She's got her lunch and little, you know, uh, the fruit cut up in little clear plastic lunch boxes. Her fridge is organized, and that's when you see oh, there's a link to those products. If I buy those, I will become that. So Pritchard says that we shop aspirationally, and she's right. Mm. So she found that when she was in sort of you know her problem and and down that sort of financial hole, the advice she was looking at was just sort of. It was generally from older men, what she says, older white men, who said, just just stop, just stop shopping. Um, and she said that they didn't really um, kind of meet her into their, into their advice what young people and particularly young women are up against today in terms of marketers trying to get them to spend their hard-earned money. So she then takes two steps back and says, actually, budgeting is not the first place you should start if you're worried about overspending. It's investigating the reasons why you buy the things you buy and what emotions that brings up. Mm. Yeah, well, buying a dream is is no new phenomena. Like, a uh, dream has been sold f- for for forever, really. And there's nothing wrong with buying into a dream. The problem now is that you're bombarded with so many um, unattainables that are all linked to products. How do you extract yourself from it? Is there any way to protect yourself from that? We're all online all the time. I mean, I have not discovered that, and my <laughs> Amazon list will tell you that too. Um, but yeah, back in the, the back in the old days, I'm talking, you know, when I was younger, you could just throw out the catalogs. You could turn off the TV. Um, when you saw product placement in movies, it was very obvious. Mm. Now it's you're assaulted 24/7, and it's very very difficult. And especially if you have children as well, and teenagers and tweens, they're being sucked into this, and they don't have necessarily the life experience to know when they're being sold things. So I think parents in particular are feeling this push. Mm. Now, the the influencer and the era of the influencer, as you mentioned it earlier, I mean, it is really at peak level now. Do you think that that's waning? Do you think that there's more scepticism around it because of this? I do think there's increased scepticism, but that just means that the tactics have moved on. So instead of, say, you know, like a classic influencer, um, who post photos up of their outfit on Instagram, that might be replaced by someone who is making really aesthetic videos of their morning coffees. And they, there's, there's a whole genre of content about um, morning routines and also organized pantries and fridges. And those things sell you, you know, the little labeled containers. They sell you yeah. the plastic inserts that you put into drawers. They sell you the little glass drawers that you drink your iced coffee out of in the morning so you can feel organized. And the... Faces of the influencers aren't even in those videos, but if you swipe to their Amazon storefront, they get a commission out of every product they sell out of that. And also what's happening is people aren't even getting paid or being given free stuff to flog it anymore. They're actually going out there and buying it with their own money to set themselves up as content creators because they, they think this is the normal thing you do online. Well, and, so and probably be, itself. because they're probably chasing the, the clicks themselves. So exactly. they're happy with the content. So is there any kind of regulation around this, Brianna, that you discovered at all? I think there's, there's been in the States moves moves to um, like that you have to, if you're in those affiliate programs, you have to really signpost that. Mm. Um, Ireland is getting there and catching up. And particularly, it's more with the revenue laws that have come in recently. That means influencers also now have to declare the value 
value of gifts they receive from companies, not just the payment. Um, so there is a bit more scrutiny there. But long term, I just don't know if the legislation will move fast enough to keep up with what we're seeing now, which is sort of consumerism on steroids mm. with these content channels. If you're just tuning in, folks, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. I'm speaking with Brianna Perkins from the Irish Times and we're talking about consumers being encouraged to buy things that they just don't need. Um, Brianna, any advice that you would give to people who are trying to navigate the next couple of weeks? Because it's just going to be relentless now between Black Friday, Happy Monday, Christmas, whatever it is. Um, did you pick up any tips for people? Yeah, so Deirdre Robinson is a senior research officer with um, Esri, sorry, I should say Dr. Deirdre Robinson, and she looks into this and she studies why Irish consumers uh, make the decisions that they do. And there's some really good information out there about that. And she recommends starting at the basics and checking with the, the CCPC sites, looking at your consumer rights, and going back to understand that humans aren't rational. So we think in economics that people behave rationally and behavioral economics is all about actually no humans do not behave in the black and white lines. Mm. And she talked about research that says, you know, we're more likely to value something that we've paid more money from or has a higher discount. So you're likely to value, say, a jumper that has a hundred euros off. You're likely to see that as a good deal, whether you actually need that or not, or whether it's actually good quality or not. We just perceive it through dollar signs. <laughs> The psychology Sorry. of this is absolutely crazy, isn't it, really, when you sit down and think about it? We're irrational creatures. Um, and she mentioned um, the 2017 Nobel Prize um, into this study. And it's one of my favourite studies of all time. They, uh, this researcher, it's so simple. He basically asked people and said, look, you're sitting on a beach. Um, your friend is going off to the shop. And he told half the group, look, he's going to go to the local corner shop, but I'm not going to have my phone on me, so I won't... You, like you have to tell me now how much you're willing to pay for that beer. And they found that people put in around three to four euros. Now they told the second group, I'm going to go get that beer from a really fancy hotel. Mm. How much would you be willing to spend? And the price was double. Now it's the same beer, drunken on the same sand, he's still coming back to the same spot on the beach, but people were willing to pay double for the same thing because of their perceived sort of cognitive bias around value. Mm. So we don't shop rationally and that's something to really keep in mind when you're looking at these deals. Is it actually a deal? Was it actually reduced at all? And now is a good time to start tracking prices. You can use apps for that as well. Yeah, and just be, just be more conscious and aware online. I just want to finally ask you um, something else that Paige Pritchard talked to you about, which was, you know, we all understand that the main buyers in households are women, you know, so, so the yeah. targets for marketeers are women. Um, you've been looking at some of these de-influencers as well. What advice did Paige Pritchard give to, to women, basically, who are being specifically targeted online? So she talks a lot around, you know, shame being um, a really strong emotion that tends us to tends to make us not want to deal with problems. Mm. That's the most per pervasive thing. So in her community, they all talk about things on pages like, "Oh God, yeah, I shop my way through things as well." And she sort of says, "Shame stops when you when you bring it out into the light." But she's also um, really clear about when you're following spending coaches and you're in these spaces to understand that people like spending coaches, unlike regulated financial advisors, they're not regulated by places like the central bank or other financial institutions. So you don't have those consumer protections. So basically watch out for someone saying, change your money mindset and you'll make a million in six months. 
and then they're charging you, you know, all for the low, low price of $9.99 a month if you mm. buy my course. Basically, watch out for those people um, and really do your due diligence when you're getting into this world. She recommends um, not just following one person's advice, but really educating yourself and treating it like a buffet and taking a bit of advice from each person from that, that works for you. Well, look, I think the message is buyer beware. And if it's if it looks too good to be true, then, then it really is. But Brianna, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us today. That was very helpful, informative and interesting. That was Brianna Perkins from The Irish Times. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock, a big oil deal in the US and what it tells us about the transition to green energy. Jamie Smith is the US Energy Editor and he'll be joining me after this short break. You welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. Now, despite a growing global shift towards cleaner energy sources and a lower carbon society, Chevron and Exxon, who are two US majors, are doubling down on their speciality oil. So what's behind this push and is it a smart bet? Well, Jamie Smith is the US Energy Editor for the Financial Times and he joins me on the line now. Jamie, you're very welcome back to News Talk. Oh, hello, Mandy. Jamie, you're you're new into this job, but it kind of got me thinking about the energy position and the energy story uh, itself in the news. Now, energy has always been a big part of the Financial Times uh, coverage, I guess. But you and I are of an age to remember when it was a small column down the edge of the business pages. I was looking at today's paper and actually energy's right through from the very front page, right through to the sports pages where they're talking about you know, energy companies involved in in the World Cup and 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 sports sponsorship and stuff. So, this is a it's a big job for you. It's a big challenge. Yeah, I mean, energy is. I mean, it's sort of come to the fore in recent years because of obviously Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the war there. That really has pushed the 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 energy sector to the forefront of everybody's uh, TV screens and the news. Um, but of course, you know, if you think back half a century ago, you had the uh, 1970s oil crisis, you know. And mm. um, so oil and energy has always been central to, to the economy. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's a big challenge, but uh, one that is really, really interesting and, you know, has huge implications for the world in terms of the energy transition due to climate change. So Absolutely. very interested in reporting on that. Absolutely. Well, look, best of luck in the role. I'm sure you're going to be brilliant at it. But as you say, energy, oil, all of that is kind of something that is always in our narrative somewhere or other, because it actually is one of those big macroeconomic stories that affects us in our day to day lives. We're going to look today at some of the bigger deals that have been happening around the world and what that might tell us about the landscape of certain companies. So I just want to start off with a deal, Jamie, that happened a couple of weeks ago, Chevron agreed to buy a big gas producer. Can you just give us um, a, a bit of an overview of what that deal was and how significant the, sta- the scale of it was? Yeah, so Chevron, is, it's the second biggest Western oil company. It's got a market cap of about $270 billion and it made record profits last year of $30 billion, $35 billion you know, after uh, the sort of big spike in oil prices uh, due to the uh, Russia-Ukraine war. So it had a lot of money to spend. And um, it has operations in the US, Kazakhstan, Venezuela and Australia. But it really wanted to diversify its portfolio. And um, it was looking for uh, companies it could, uh, could acquire. And one of the companies is a New York-based company called Hess which started off as like a family-run business 
run by Leon Hess uh, in the 1930s. He was trucking coal and oil around New Jersey and New York. And then he built this business over 90 years, which was really a family-dominated conglomerate. Um, and it just it moved from the coal and oil business. It actually was a part owner of the New York Jets at one stage. So it got into lots of different sectors. And then about a decade ago, it came under some challenges. It had to slim down and it really focused on, you know, pumping oil from fields in the U.S. And it got a share of a field in Guyana. And that's, Guyana is very interesting because it's one of the uh, newest sort of oil resources. And it bought a 30% share into this. And Guyana now is going to be, you know, one of the biggest oil exporters in the world in coming years. It's got a resource of about 11 billion barrels. So Chevron saw that and it really wanted to get this sort of resource so that it could pump oil for longer. And also it's very cheap. Uh, it's quite cheap to produce oil in Guyana. So that was really the crown jewel of this deal. The deal was uh, uh, 53 billion in an all stock transaction. It's the largest in Chevron's history. And um, so it, it was a really big deal. Mm. You mentioned there that um, the the company Chevron had a lot of money that it was sitting on. Um, is that as a result of the Ukraine war and, you know, the increased prices and all the windfall we would have heard about? Is that something that factored into this? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, the big oil producers have really had a bonanza over the last year. You know, the price of oil surged last year in oil and gas in the aftermath of uh you know, the uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And so they've all been making shed loads of money. So they're, they've got big uh, cash reserves. Um, what they're doing is uh, certainly the US super majors, they call them, ExxonMobil and Chevron. They have this belief that, you know, fossil fuels are going to remain central to the energy mix for decades to come. So it's quite a controversial position because if you think like the energy, the International Energy Agency has forecast recently that demand for fossil fuels is actually going to peak uh, by 2030. So that's coal, oil and gas. They think demand's going to peak and it's going to start going down. But Chevron and Exxon have a very different view of the world. We interviewed Mike Worth, who's Chevron's CEO recently, and he told us, uh, about the IEA prediction, you know, I don't think they're remotely right, he said. You know, you can build scenarios, but we live in the real world. So they have a very different view of where the world is going in terms of the energy mix. Mm. And and that's really part of the reason that both Exxon and Chevron have done massive deals just in the last month. You know, they um, they they want to do these deals because they're going to build scale because if you're bigger, you can drive down costs, you can produce more oil, you can keep producing for longer. And also they have this strategy, which some people call a drive to be the last man standing in the oil industry. So they think if you build scale, you acquire other companies, you're going to be one of the last companies standing producing oil and gas, and you're going to be able to benefit and make a lot of profit from that. Yeah. And the the narrative coming out of the EU, say, where they're they're talking about um, getting rid of fossil fuels by 2030 and that pushback against that from the majors and, and even some of the bigger companies who are based in Europe as well, has for a long time been um, 
you know, to the contrary of, of what you hear from policymakers. But this is probably the first time we've seen some real money um, from those super majors go into something that that puts a bit of weight behind that. Um, do you think, Jamie, that this is a signal that the production side of things can't progress because of regulatory um, constraints now uh, and that maybe the acquisitions is is the way to go rather than to, to do their own kind of internal um, what would you say, like um, progression of the, of the company through internal productions? So there are some regulatory challenges for the U.S. super majors over here in America. The Biden administration has, uh, for example, offshore drilling. It's cut down the amount of leases it provides for offshore drilling. And it is trying to uh, reduce the, uh, the amount of fossil fuel production in the US, although ironically, in the aftermath of uh, the Russia-Ukraine war, war, when prices spiked, the Biden administration started asking the super majors mm. to pump more oil and gas. So there is a bit of an irony there, but the drift and the general policy is to try and get them to, you know, uh, to stop developing new oil and gas basins. Um, and that's bitterly opposed by the US industry. Um, but another uh, factor in this drive for, um, uh, you, you know, to do M&A is that it, by, if you, when you get bigger, you reduce cost, you can hopefully produce more profits. So there's both a commercial and a regulatory sort of incentive there. Um, and I think w- one of the big differences, actually, I think it's really important to note is the difference between the European mm. super majors like BP and Shell and the US super majors. You know, BP and Shell... Uh, because they're in Europe, they're under more pressure from investors to have uh, to, to really set tougher climate targets than their U.S. counterparts. So BP, for example, has uh, signaled that it will reduce oil production by 2030. Um, initially, it said this by 40 percent. This year, it actually brought it down to 25 percent after a bit of a pushback by investors on mm. that point. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. I'm speaking to Jamie Smith, who is the US energy editor. And we're talking about some major deals which have happened in the US in some of the super major oil companies. Um, Jamie, just picking up there on BP, um, as you mentioned, it has gone through uh, quite a bit of turmoil with its own investors of late. a little bit to do with its its own like CEO and structures, but s- some commentary that I listened to at the time of Bernard Looney's departure was that um, a lot of people within the company felt that he maybe had taken them too far down the transition road and too fast, and that when the kind of tectonic plates started to move geopolitically, and there was a need for more production, that they weren't able to exploit the market in ways that other companies were. What do you make of that? I think certainly investors and particularly US investors in BP and Shell and Total, you know, they would feel that the companies have erred in their move to set these tougher climate targets and reduce, you know, set targets for reducing oil and gas production, mm. and they would see the big shift in prices after the Russia-Ukraine war as a vindication in their position that they moved too soon to, you know, move to reduce their oil and gas production. Now, within the company itself, the board has given strong backing 
to the new target, which was set in February, you know, to reduce oil production by 25%, which is less than the initial 40% reduction, they have said that that strategy will remain Mm. and they are going to continue pushing into low carbon technologies and indeed renewables. Um, But uh, I don't think Bernard Looney's departure is linked to this pushback. You know, I think the company were pretty specific when they came out with the change in leadership last month. Um, and it was more, it was linked to, you know, relationships with he had had with other staff members that weren't adequately disclosed to the board. Um, but certainly from an investor viewpoint, these US investors in particular see that the European super majors are missing out on a lot of profit mm. by producing their oil and gas at a faster rate than uh, the US super majors. Jamie, what's happening with the oil prices now? Uh, we probably felt that the war in Gaza was going to have another significant effect on pricing, but can you just give us an overview of what's happening so far there? Well, yeah, so everybody thought, well, a lot of analysts thought that when the war in Gaza broke out, you know, there was go- we're, we're going to see a big increase in prices. And we did see an initial spike up because oil prices generally move whenever, you know, geopolitical issues get tense. You do tend to see uh, a move upwards. Um, if you remember, I mean, half a century ago, it was I- incredible coincidence that 50 years after the Arab-Israeli war in 1973 in October, when that broke out, it was a surprise attack against Israel, that sent oil prices up, you know, it caused them to triple mm. 50 years ago when that happened. Now, we didn't see that here. We saw a small uh, initial, you know, I think it was a 6 7% jump in prices, nothing like that. And I think there's a few reasons why, you know, experts point to the fact that it was a limited increase. You know, most people think that this uh, war against Hamas can be contained more easily and it won't spread and draw in Iran. That's the big fear that it could draw in Iran and that it won't lead to an escalation that results in supply interruption. That's the big fear that you get a conflict in the Middle East, supply gets interrupted and prices spike. You know, one of the big differences from 50 years ago is that the Arab countries then were were, were quite united in their attack against mm. Israel, whereas this attack against Hamas was really, you know, it, or this uh, attack by Hamas against Israel, you know, is not widely supported within the Arab world. So there's less chance of OPEC agreeing to any embargo or, you know, curtailing supplies to the US. Um, and also put, people think it's not really in Iran's interest to escalate right now. And, and Saudi Arabia has no interest in curtailing production. It, it wants prices, I think, to remain within that $80 to $100 a barrel limit. I mean, that's what basically supports its economy best. It doesn't want to see oil really spiking to $150 a barrel because that will affect the Saudi economy because people will stop using oil so much. You know, it's called demand destruction when that happens. Mm. Uh, And also, the you know, we're not seeing oil demand surging like it was in the 1970s. You know, oil's edging up very slowly in terms of demand and it's almost plateauing as the world does move towards this this, uh, energy transition. Um, So there's a lot of reasons why we don't think the oil prices are going to spike really heavily. However, you know, a war is very unpredictable. Geopolitics can be very unpredictable. In fact, just a few years ago, you did see that Iran was able to use 
Yemeni proxies to attack Saudi Arabia's production of oil, and that impacted uh, the oil price. That was back in 2019. So you can never rule out a wider escalation. Absolutely not. And energy increasingly used more and more as a weapon in those wars. But Jamie, that was very informative and enlightening. Thank you very much for joining us today. That was Jamie Smith, US Energy Editor with the Financial Times. Jamie, good luck in your new role. Thanks, Mandy. You're listening to Taking Stock here on News Talk. Coming up, GB News, is it a bastion for free speech or just one man's ideological mouthpiece? We'll be discussing it all after this short break. Welcome back to News Talk's Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now take a quick listen to this. Hi folks, Boris Johnson here. I'm excited to say that I'm shortly going to be joining you on GB News and I'm going to be giving this remarkable new TV channel, my unvarnished views on everything from Russia, China, the war in Ukraine, how we meet all those challenges, to the huge opportunities that lie ahead for us, why I think our best days are yet to come, and why, on the whole, the people of the world want to see more global Britain, not less. So join me on GB News for some great British television. That was, of course, the unmistakable voice of Boris Johnson in the last few days announcing a new role as a presenter on the television station GB News. But what exactly is GB News? Are they an English version of Fox or simply a free speech network? Well, joining me now to discuss is a man who's been both critical of GB News and has also been a recent guest on GB News. It's Professor Steve Barnett, who is Professor of Communication at Westminster University. Steve, thank you so much for joining me today. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, I, I watched that episode of you with John Cleese and we should mention that John Cleese, that iconic comedian, has become a presenter of late as well. I'm not quite sure what, what I was expecting, but I, I really enjoyed it. It was, a, it was a very interesting programme and I thought he was a good host. What, what did you make of it? Well, I can tell you something. If you've enjoyed watching it, it was absolutely mad being <laughs> part of it. I mean, for those listeners of yours, as probably the, the great majority who haven't seen it, this was filmed in a vast room in a castle in Essex. I didn't know this until I got there, which featured sort of suits of armors all around the walls. And then scattered around on the set, they had little tables like you might be in a sort of coffee bar with armchairs around them. And John interviews his guests in one of those armchairs. But scattered around all the other tables are a combination of nuns. <laughs> uh, you heard right, nuns, men in bowler hats, there are men being uh, serving pints of beer. There are bishops uh, and there are people playing chess. And of course, scurrying around the floor is a lot of cats and kittens. Yeah, and it, was, so, uh, it, was all, it was all very kind of Python-esque really, wasn't it? Was, it really was, exactly that. At one point though, Steve, um, I think one of the cats jumped up on one of the, maybe it was on John Cleese and started drinking gin out of John Cleese's glass. It was, it was just all so bizarre. Yes, and as you said at the time, that's going to be one very happy cat later on. Exactly, exactly. But I have to say, um, the the programme that you were on, Steve, um, was about media regulation. And you spoke a lot about the, the print press, I think, um, in, 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 in the UK and what it's like. It was a very serious topic. And I felt that... Um, Again, I don't know what I was expecting, that I felt he did let people give their views. I felt that there was a good spread of views. Um, and I, I thought he was a really good listener as well. I completely agree. Uh, and I mean, 
I've known John a bit over the years because I've been campaigning on um, getting a more accountable press for the UK in, uh, in the wake of the phone hacking scandal and a lot of other stuff that's emerged about uh, really quite um, abusive uh, journalistic practices um, within UK newspapers. And I emphasize newspapers rather than the broadcasters. Mm. Um, so I've been involved in that campaign. John's always been a supporter. And he got in touch with me um, about six months ago saying, I've got this gig on GB News. They want me to do um, 10 programs. I can do anything I want. I can say anything I want. I've got complete editorial control. And I'd like you to be on this one about um, regulating the press and what we can do and why the British press is so bad, why it's, why it's the least trusted in the whole of Europe, etc. Mm. Um, and, and, and I said yes. And that's despite the fact that I've, I have a lot of problems with GB News. I think it breaks the rules. I think by and large, its news coverage is extremely one-sided and very right-wing. But I was reassured by John that mm. he had editorial control over his own program. Yeah. Um, and frankly, the idea of working with John Cleese, who is you know, my, my, my childhood hero, was uh, too much for anyone to turn down. Absolutely, you're never going to turn that down. But just for listeners, yeah. if anybody does want to watch it, it's called The Dinosaur Hour. And inexplicably, I really liked it. But anyway, uh, back to what you're here to talk about, Steve. We wanted sure. to, as you mentioned there, like a lot of Irish people wouldn't have even watched GB News. So um, really, in, in the sense of being a, a media broadcast, a TV and radio station, it's still relatively new. So can you just remind um, our Irish listeners what the station is and what it set out to do when it was when it when it was started. Yes, it was actually set up. Um, it's bankrolled by a man called Paul Marshall, who is a billionaire. Uh, I think he's a hedge fund owner who was originally a Liberal Democrat, but has moved steadily to the right and uh, is now pretty right wing. He was a big player in the pro Brexit campaign in the UK and gave the Brexit campaign a lot of money. So he, along with a group called the Legarton Foundation. Um, have put some money into this station. Legatum, again, a, a very right-wing group. Um, I think I'm right in saying they're founded primarily by the Koch brothers, the Koch brothers mm. in the States. Um, and from the very beginning, from the get-go, it was set up uh, to be a right-wing station to uh, its, its uh, most of the people who host it are right-wingers, people like Nigel Farage, um, the, the, most of the politicians they have on it are members of the uh, Conservative cabinet or even to the right of the, uh, the current Conservative cabinet. And it actually pays lip service to the idea of impartiality. And I, I'm pretty sure you've got the same rule in Ireland, but I should remind listeners that actually we've got pretty strict rules in the UK for broadcasting. Um, laid down in an Act of Parliament in 2003 that broadcast journalism should be impartial. And that means that on issues of industrial or political controversy, they should give both sides. Programs should give both sides of any argument. And one of the uh, huge criticisms of GB News and also of our regulator Ofcom is that GB News has not been doing that. It's been consistently right wing and not allowing voices from uh, progressive voices or uh, any kind of dissenting voices. Uh, and more importantly, that the regulator Ofcom has consistently let them get away with it. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that, that's, that's, been, that's the sort of context 
for, for, for this station. And it's sort of separate from the Cleese sort of dinosaur hour program. Yeah. Um, so, so, so one of the things that um, you mentioned earlier is the distinction between the British print press and the broadcast press, which, look, the British print press in, in the UK is always, when we're looking at it from this remove, you know, skewed in one way or another, it's, you know, kind of wears its heart on its sleeve, you know, who it's supporting. The broadcast, you know, as you say, it, it's got a great reputation, the BBC and what have you. And um, so, when when you talk of Ofcom and and that the GB News is regulated by them, so are you saying that Ofcom are not censoring them at all? What should Ofcom be doing? Where are the instances where you feel because it's it's not even attempting to be impartial? The bits that I've looked at. No, exactly, and I think it's important that we don't use the word censor because. Um, it, it, it's really uh, the, the, the way the legislation is set up is that it's quite clearly on a kind of retrospective basis, mm. it's post hoc. Mm. So you don't say to Ofcom, I want to say this, will you let me? And Ofcom says yes or no. You basically broadcast, you have a code of conduct that Ofcom lays down and you are expected because you're a licensed broadcaster, Ofcom gives you the license to broadcast. You're therefore expected to abide by this code. Mm. And the code has very clear rules on both on accuracy and on impartiality. And there are many, many instances. And I mean, I, I'm not sure I'd like to encourage people to watch it, but certainly just to get a flavor of it, it might be worth watching uh, a program presented by Nigel Farage, for example, um, there and there are. I mean, Dan Wooten's been taken off it now because he's a very controversial figure. But when he was hosting his program, it was the same thing. And um, almost any issue, if you take something like climate change, mm. where there is, uh, you know, there might be different views. There is pretty much a settled opinion now that climate change is a problem, and it is by and large uh, man-made, and we need to do something about it. You would not get that view reflected if you watch GB News or if you did, it would be kind of dismissed. It would be uh, it would be um, pursued in a in a much more skeptical, skeptical or contemptuous manner. Mm. Um, so they pay lip service to the idea of impartiality. It's sort of, yeah, of course, some people think that, uh, you know, uh, climate change is real. Ha ha ha. Um, I, I, but the guests they have on, as I say, they tend to be right wing politicians. They tend to be members of the Conservative cabinet. They've actually had two uh, cabinet members presenting a programme, uh, or one presenting a programme and interviewing two other Conservative politicians. Sorry, breaking all the rules. Yeah, just to jump in there, are there no rules yeah. in British politics about that type of behaviour where a serving minister can conduct interviews like that and, and take part like that in news programmes? Uh, no, I mean, uh, serving politicians can can you know, essentially do what they want. Mm. It's, it, the rules are about broadcasters rather than about politicians. I mean, there is a rule, part of the Ofcom code is quite clear, that serving politicians, politicians should not be presenting a news programme. Mm. And there are sort of angels dancing on the head of a pin about what constitutes a news programme and what is more sort of current affairsy or an opinion programme. But, you know, the, the channel is called GB News. Mm. So, frankly, any programme that is presented by a serving politician um, ought to be out of bounds. Well, look, it's a unique selling point is is definitely the point of view of the interviewer. And then the bits that I did watch of Nigel Farage 
you know, in the panels don't make any attempt to 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 contradict those views. So I don't really know where that uh, code is fitting in. Have Ofcom, you know, challenged them in any way? They're just starting to um, uh, to get involved. I mean, there was a ruling recently where they said one program, um, which I think from memory did involve Farage, uh, wasn't sufficiently impartial, didn't have enough views, um, enough opposing views. Um, it's a very kind of, it's a sort of slap on the wrist mm. and um, there was no fine or anything like that. And they just said the channel accepted that they, what they did was wrong and uh, said that they would put it right. Um, well, you know, anyone who's still watching would find it quite difficult to find ways in which they are really putting it right. Mm. There's, I should say there's another glitch here. I mean, there are those that Paul Marshall has thrown his hat in the ring. Um, just to, uh, I mean, listeners may not know, but the Telegraph newspaper over here is up for sale and we're going through a bidding process at the moment. And Paul Marshall, the co-owner of GB News, is one of those who's thrown his hat in the ring and there is some suggestion that he's want he's wanting to be quite careful at the moment about not breaking rules while he's making this bid for the uh, for the Telegraph and, and the Spectator. Mm. Oh. I, don't, I don't know if that's true or not. I actually did want to go back to him for a moment. Um, you gave us a good overview of, of his career, and as you said, he's bounced along uh, around a lot of, of political parties and 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 made contributions to many. But his investment in this. Um, I'm taking it is not commercially driven, it's ideologically driven. And to that end, what is he trying to pursue? Is this, you know, the final America's Americanization of, of UK media? Is he just trying to promote the far right? Is he trying to make Nigel Farage leader of the Conservatives? What do you think his endgame is? <laughs> Very interesting question. I mean, that put to some extent all of the above. I mean, I was very intrigued to see that uh, Nigel Farage was uh, very conspicuous by his presence at the Conservative mm. Party conference um, and uh, got quite a lot of publicity out of it. He's not been allowed in there for, for many years. Um, so there is a clear sense of that party moving to the right, a bit like the American Republican Party. Mm -hmm. um, and I think part, part of this project, you're absolutely right, by the, by the way, to talk about this as an ideological project. It does not make money. It's losing money. I don't think it's projected to make any money. It's very unlikely that it will make money, if at all, for very many years. So it is an ideological project. And I think the simplest way I can explain it is that this is someone who simply wants to move the country to the right, mm. that he doesn't, he, he doesn't like progressive voices. He thinks that, uh, yeah, to use the vernacular, Broadcasters are too woke. The BBC is too left wing. It's the kind of arguments that you see trotted out in the Daily Mail, the Sun, the Telegraph. Um, you know, we mentioned the press. It's predominantly a right wing press in the UK, and those are the arguments that they're frequently trotting out. And I think he subscribes to those arguments and says, "Yeah, this is a bit like Fox in America. This is my way of saying we need more voices on the right." Mm. Uh, but unlike Fox in America. We have rules in this country and they're being broken, I'm afraid, on a, on a daily basis. Do you think, Steve, it's, it's all really back to that tabloid adage that if it bleeds, it leads and they just want voices that are going to stoke kind of controversy. This is not real journalism. Um, are you fearful that this might become more invasive or pervasive in, in the British media now? 
I am. And, and I think you're right to pick up on that. I mean, you know, we're in the middle of probably one of the biggest world crises since the Second World War. Um, and, you know, GB News, and it's, you know, it, it's supposed to be a news channel. It would never go anywhere near the Middle mm. East or Gaza. There are no reporters on the ground. It's not a station that is a journalism station in the sense that we might think about it, sending people to find out what's going on and report the news back to viewers and listeners. It is essentially set up to pursue a political agenda and to do so, and I think you're absolutely right to pick up on this, in a rather in a divisive, polarized way uh, to provoke from a very particular perspective. And in that way, I'm afraid I see only more division and more polarization, which is exactly what Fox has achieved in, in, in the US, uh, as well as um, the spread of conspiracy theories, um, which really have had no place in this country on broadcast television ever. I mean, mm. you do see them sometimes in the press. So I, I think it's the sort of, it is a tabloidization of broadcasting, but in a way it's worse than that because it doesn't involve original journalism or original news. It's all about opinion, provocation, uh, finger-pointing and flag-waving. Mm. Well, Steve, listen, it is a very interesting topic and thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. That was Steve Barnett, who's Professor of Communication at Westminster University. Steve, thanks for joining us and we wait for your, your next appearance on with John Cleese and his cats. <laughs> I look forward to it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. While we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're always available as a podcast first on Friday mornings on the News Talk app. My thanks as always to all of today's guests for giving their very valuable time and insights to us. My thanks also to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Jack MacDonald on research and Hugo De Silva-Scott on sound. If you want to get in contact with us about any of the items on today's show, you can email takingstock at newstalk.com. And don't go anywhere because after the news, it's the Anton Savage Show with a run through all of today's Sunday newspapers and lots, lots more. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.